Let's open the Scriptures to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 15, taking a little mini break from the Gospel of John and a series there to hear a sermon on Psalm 141, and then the book of Proverbs in chapter 15 has some teaching that overlaps with Psalm 141. So the Word of God then in Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to Him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but He loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisers, they succeed. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. The path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. 
The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 141. We're going to be focusing on the verses 3 through the first part of verse 5, but we'll read the whole psalm to give us the context. A psalm of David. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. That's as far as the psalm goes, and as mentioned, we'll be focusing on verses 3 through 5, the first part. Saints of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have before us one of the many psalms of David. And in many of his psalms, we find David in trouble of some kind. There's quite often some kind of a tense predicament, and he expresses in many of them a desire to escape from that predicament. Sometimes David is confronted by heathen enemies, unbelieving enemies like the Philistines or the Moabites. At other times, he faces opposition from within the covenant community, covenant breakers like King Saul or later his own son Absalom, both of whom sought his life. On those occasions in those psalms, David is backed into a corner, and then he, he goes to the only place where he can to find help. He goes to the Lord, to his covenant God. And that's what David does here in Psalm 141 as well. 
Right off the top, he issues a cry of distress. Oh, Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. You, you, you can hear the urgency in his prayer. There's a measure of desperation, which makes us think that the enemy he's facing is particularly dangerous, that there is some fierce opponent attacking David, and he's in need of instant help, instant reinforcement from the Almighty. Oh, Lord, hasten to me. And the enemy, we soon discover, is indeed brutal. The enemy is indeed treacherous. David has seen the enemy, and the enemy is himself. And so I bring to you this word of the Lord. Father, keep me from the snare of sin. Keep me from the snare of sin. David's prayer involves the prayer to restrain me from falling and restore me when I do fall. Well, David then in, in verse 2, he carries right on with that urgent plea, and he does so with imagery maybe not so familiar to us. He says in verse 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Sacrifice we can probably get a handle on because we are familiar with the many sacrifices, but incense, well, what exactly is that? God had commanded in the Old Testament through Moses that there needed to be a sacrifice for the sins of the people every morning and every evening. A lamb had to be sacrificed at the tabernacle on that bronze altar that stood out just outside the door of the tabernacle. And right after the lamb was sacrificed, the priest was commanded to take a handful of incense. Incense is a powdery perfume, a unique blend that God had uh, given as a recipe for Moses to use only for the purpose of incense, a unique blend of smelling, sweet-smelling spices. The priest had to grab a handful of this powdery spice and throw it on the golden altar inside the temple. So he went into the temple, he would throw this on the flames of the golden altar inside the temple, and you know that that altar stood just before the curtain. On the other side of the curtain was the ark, so it was only a few feet away from the ark of God, which represented the presence of God in the tabernacle. So these two things would work together, the incense offering and the sacrifice. In fact, the incense offering could only be made once the lamb had been offered as a burnt offering. In other words, the lamb's blood, it provided the basis for the incense offering. The lamb's blood provided forgiveness of sins, and we know that that pointed forward in history to the great lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who did come and offered His life and washed away all our sin. And after the lamb was offered, the incense came next, and you have to imagine how this would go. And always there were worshipers gathered outside the tabernacle morning and evening. The priest would throw a handful of the incense on the fire inside the temple, and instantly a cloud of smoke 
sweet-smelling smoke would, would, would fill the temple, and it would, in fact, rise up, and it would spill out into the courtyard beyond. The, the whole place, you could say, was filled with holy smoke. Sweet-smelling holy smoke. The people outside, they would, they would see the cloud of smoke, they would smell it, and, and what was the message? Because all of these things had a symbolic message. What was the message of this perfume cloud? Well, you have to think of the history that Israel had with clouds. Actually, one particular cloud they had a close history with. You remember the pillar of cloud that led Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the desert. That same cloud descended on the top of Mount Sinai and later on even filled this very tabernacle. That cloud was symbolic and was, uh, was uh, of God. God was in the cloud. It was the presence of God leading His people through the wilderness to their destination in the promised land. So, this, this spice cloud, this holy smoke cloud of the incense, it was meant to make the people realize that the presence of God was still there. Emmanuel still was with them. And so every morning and every evening, God's message to His people was, I'm still here with you. I haven't left you. I am always your God, morning, noon, and night. I am with you. And added to that was this sweet smell of the incense. That was God saying, I have provided for you the forgiveness of sins in my sacrificial lamb, and so I welcome you into, the, into my presence in peace. The, the sweetness was to be a a welcome scent. It was not the scent of death, but it was the scent of life. Because of the lamb, God was saying, through that smell, that sweet smell, everything is okay between you and me. You can come near. You don't have to be afraid that I'm going to condemn you for your sins. I've taken care of your sins. All of that was communicated by that incense cloud, that holy smoke. And then the people, as they saw and smelled the incense burning, they would pray. It was a time of prayer. And the people would know that their prayers were being heard because of the blood of the Lamb, because the incense smelled savory and sweet. So David is relying on this well-known imagery, familiar to the Israelites. And when you put it together, he's basically saying here in verse 2, Lord, hear my prayer, my desperate plea, as if it were the very incense offered by the priest. David does not appeal to his own righteousness or his own faithfulness, something he does in other psalms on occasion. But here he points back to the sacrifice of the Lamb, and he's saying, Lord, hear me for the sake of the blood of your covenant, because my need is so great. I'm going to appeal to the strongest basis that I know, the blood of the Lamb. 
And what is David's great need here? What is his great enemy? Verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. David's great enemy is his own mouth. You ever thought of your mouth as an enemy? And David actually goes beyond the mouth, verse 4, do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. In one sentence, David mentions his, his mouth, then his heart, and then the, his, the actions of his body. What David thinks, what David says, what David does, he's basically praying, Oh, Father, keep me from the snare of sin in my mind, in my mouth, and in my flesh. There's a saying that summarizes David's point here. That's the saying, we have seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. You know that saying? The enemy is ourselves. Certainly, we do have external enemies. People, unbelievers who try to oppress, who try to tempt us away from following the Lord. David is aware of such people. Also, in this psalm, verse 9, keep me from the trap that the wicked have laid for me, from the snares of evildoers. But those temptations that they lay for us are a threat only because they hold attraction to our sinful hearts. Only because they have an appeal to our sinful desires of our flesh. And so the most dangerous enemy is not out there in the world. The most dangerous enemy is here in my heart. The enemy is me. That's why we need a guard for our mouths. A guard of the strongest kind, David asks for the Lord Himself to set the guard. And if you think about the words you've spoken, how many times haven't you or I said words only to regret them deeply? And sometimes the very moment they're spoken, a word of anger, a word of complaint, a word of disrespect, an insult said, a hasty and unfounded judgment thrown out there, or we repeat damaging information about our neighbor. Maybe it's a bold-faced lie. It's so bad with our mouths, our, our, our tongues, that James tells us in his letter, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire. And it sets things ablaze in destruction. How do we control this fire? How do we manage our mouths? Can we? Somehow, can we restrain our lips? Well, the answer, brothers and sisters, is yes, 
we can, by way of praying, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Because as powerful as our tongue is, and damaging as it can be, more powerful is the Lord our God. And He is able to teach us, and He is able to keep us. He is able to restrain us from sinning with our mouths. That's what David was praying for in Psalm 39, which we sang. That's something we need to teach ourselves and to our children from a young age, that we realize how evil words so easily slip out of our mouths and, and how we need to pray to the Lord, Lord, keep a guard over my lips. Keep my tongue in check. We sing, uh, we sin frequently with our tongues. But our tongues are not the place where sin starts. The tongue is just a muscle after all. Even if our tongue were cut out of our mouths, we would still be sinners, which is why David goes after the source of it all in verse 4. Do not let my heart incline to evil. To busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. Don't let me eat the delicacies of the wicked. Do you sometimes want to eat the delicacies of the wicked? What does David mean by that? Well, a delicacy is something sweet and tasty, something your eye is drawn to and your mouth waters for, like maybe a piece of chocolate cake or apple crumble or pumpkin pie. Those are delicacies. David uses this as a, a metaphor for sinful pleasures, which our bodies, our hearts, our thoughts are powerfully attracted to such things. Maybe it could be all kinds of delicacies in that sense. could be the pleasure of feeling superior at someone else's expense as we gossip about them. Gossip is one of those sins. makes us look good as we put the neighbor down, and we like the feeling of looking good. Maybe it's the pleasure of becoming successful and wealthy. We find it very satisfying to, to dwell on how much we've achieved. We like to let others know about it. Maybe it's the delicacy of some kind of sex outside of marriage. Or maybe we just crave something, some experience, something to make us feel alive. Whatever the delicacy might be, we, we want those things. We, we hunger after them, and yet without fail, when we give in to our cravings, we do not find the happiness we thought we would, but misery. A brief excitement, a short sense of feeling great, but it fades fast, and in its place comes guilt and emptiness and even self-loathing. Let me not eat 
of their delicacies. He prays. But brothers and sisters, if you do eat of the wicked delicacies, if you do fall into temptation and experience the misery of guilt, then do not stay there hating yourself, repeating your mistake. No. Do what David does and cry out to God, confessing your sin and seeking the mercy he offers, and you will find it. David is certain that his prayer will be heard because of the evening sacrifice and the, the incense offering that accompanied it, and we may be the more certain that our prayers will be heard because of the one sacrifice of Christ that those earlier sacrifices were pointing to. So whatever delicacies you've stolen and eaten, whatever cravings you have indulged, when you turn over your sin to Jesus in true repentance, He bathes you, He showers you in forgiveness. And He gives you help to restrain you from falling back into sin. If David could already in his time have the Lord as doorkeeper of his lips and guardian of his heart, how much more so today after Christ has poured out his Spirit upon his church, Emmanuel is with us like never before to keep us from the snare of sin. So make that your prayer, brothers and sisters. Father, keep me from the trap of sin. Father, keep me from falling into temptation. For when that is the constant prayer of our lips, the Lord will certainly guard our heart, heads and hearts and hands so that we don't fall but pass by those snares safely. Of course, that's just the problem so often for us, isn't it? that we forget to pray, that we neglect to pray, or more accurately, we choose not to pray. Maybe you've noticed that pattern in your life. When you are busy eating your delicacy, indulging your sin, what goes on with your prayer life? What happens to your pattern of prayer? It pretty much tanks, doesn't it? There's a direct correlation between indulging in sin and, and prayer. I mean, when you're, when you're not walking with God, why would you bother talking with God? Last person you want to really talk with seriously is God because you want what you want. You want those delicacies. Deep inside, you know the Lord is displeased with you. But you shove that thought away, you, you silence your conscience, the plea of Psalm 141, it fades out of your mind, and, and you do not pray the sixth petition, Father, do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. That doesn't come to mind. It, you don't want it to come to mind. Because in those moments, you and I, we have no intention of turning away from the sin that we're thinking about. And so it happens that we fall. We indulge 
we eat the delicacy. It's not because God didn't keep watch over our mouths well enough or that God didn't guard our hearts diligently. It's that we neglected our duty to pray, to ask Him to keep the guard strong. And in doing so, we opened our hearts for evil. David himself knew about this miserable reality, right? You can think about his life. He, he certainly hadn't always prayed Psalm 141's petitions. There was a time when he just let his heart do what it wanted to do. The time when he spoke rash words of vengeance against Nabal, who had mistreated him, and he wanted to kill Nabal and wipe him out, and it was Abigail that restrained him, you remember? That was not a time of wisdom for David. There was a time when he lusted after Bathsheba, the time when he had Joab, his commander, count the fighting men of Israel, though he knew those were sins. He wanted what he wanted, and he did what he wanted. And we do that too, right? We know that feeling. We can give our heart over to all kinds of delicacies. Maybe it's the, the sin of feeling bitter and angry towards someone. Never making the effort to deal with the root cause. Never seeking reconciliation, but just letting the bitterness fester because our feeling of being right, because we're sure we're right, that feeling of being right means more to us than God's command to reconcile with your neighbor, God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. We want to maintain our righteousness at all costs. Or we give our lips to, to lying and deceitfulness in order to keep up pretenses because we're concerned about our reputation. Our reputation means more to us than the truth of God sometimes. Or we can give our hearts to, to lust and our flesh to sexual pleasure because that pleasure means more to us than God's command to preserve the gift of sexual purity for marriage and to enjoy it only within the context of marriage. We can aim our lives at making all kinds of money I'm going to pay the mortgage off as fast as possible. I'm going to have enough to live comfortably. We're going to have great vacations. We're all about having a good time because that means more to us than investing our time and talent and money in building up the kingdom of God. We can get caught up in these things like David got caught up in his sins. It's good to know that God can and will protect us from a fall into sin when we're asking Him to, but what about when we turn off prayer? What about when we turn the volume down on God? We don't listen to His Word anymore. We're not praying anymore. We're just sleepwalking through life. What then? How are we going to get out of our sin then? Well, David comes to that in verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me, he prays. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. That kind of seems a bit 
unreal when you first read that. I mean, let a righteous man strike me? That's a kindness? Who wants to be beaten? But David is not talking about a physical blow, a punch to the head or something like that. No, he's from the parallel. We understand what he means. The parallel reads, let him rebuke me for it is oil on my head. Oil on the head was a refreshing thing for the Israelites. It was something they would do after a long journey for themselves or for their guests. To rebuke, that means to confront a person with their sin, to, to go up to them and person to person, say to them out of a sincere concern for their well-being and the glory of God, say something like, my brother, my sister, the way you are living, the things you're saying and doing, they go against God's law. Look, look the Scriptures say you should be doing this, but you're doing the opposite, so you need to change. That's a rebuke. That's a, a word of correction. David is asking God to send a righteous man to rebuke him when he has fallen into sin. Why does he want to rebuke? So he can repent. That's why he regards it as a kindness and like oil on his head because the rebuke leads to the blessing of restoration with God. And that feels like opposite world because we don't normally think of a rebuke as a good thing, right? Like you don't like getting in trouble from your parents or from a teacher. That's what parents and teachers do. They, they rebuke you when you do wrong. But the Bible mentions this as a blessing in many places. We read one of the passages in Proverbs 15. There's three Proverbs there that speak about this. Verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction but whoever heeds reproof, that's just another word for rebuke, correction, whoever heeds that, whoever listens to rebuke is prudent, is wise. Verse 12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved, doesn't like to be rebuked. He will not go to the wise. And then verse 31, the ear that listens to life-giving rebuke will dwell among the wise. Life-giving rebuke. Do you listen, my brothers and sisters, to a life-giving rebuke when it is given? Or when someone comes to you in sincerity with a word of correction, do you shut your ears and tune them out? By nature, we all want to do that. But the child of God says, I've got all ears. You want to correct me? I'm listening. I'm listening. Even more, do we pray for the Lord to send us a righteous person to verbally reproof me, reprimand me, correct me, if ever I should fall into sin, do we make that a regular prayer? Lord, send somebody if I've fallen. We need that. 
We need it desperately because when we fall into sin, when we're indulging those delicacies, the last thing we want to do is leave the sin, and we will not get out of the trap of ungodly pleasure or desire or any of those idols until we recognize in true sorrow of heart what we are doing is offensive to God. And we're not going to have our eyes open to that unless the Word of God strikes our heart and moves us to repentance. And when we're eating our delicacies and indulging our sins, we're not praying to God and we're not reading Scripture, not seriously. How then does the Word of God come to address our heart unless that good person brings it to us straight up? Isn't that what happened to David? You remember his sin with Bathsheba? After months and months of indulging that sin, hiding that sin, and involved murder, it involved lies and adultery, God finally sent Nathan, the prophet, who spoke a little parable. Remember the parable about the sheep? The sheep of the poor man and one little sheep taken away by the ruthless, wealthy neighbor. He lays that parable out before David. David gets upset. He wants to know who that man is so he can deal with him. And Nathan said to him, David, you're the man. And he crumpled. The word of God, like an arrow, struck his heart, and he crumpled in sorrow and repentance right there before Nathan. Nathan was literally a godsend and someone who rebukes his neighbor in sincerity and truth is equally a godsend. God sends us to rebuke our neighbor. Lord Jesus said it in Matthew 18, when someone sins against you, go and show your brother his fault. Just between the two of you, go and rebuke him, in other words. Why? So that you might win your brother or sister over because without repentance, that person is lost. So, brothers and sisters, from our side, we need to be open to this rebuke. Doesn't come naturally. We need to be ready for correction and see it as a blessing to be prayed for. Father, let a good man strike me with your word. Let a sister in Christ rebuke me for my sin that I may wake up to my evil and turn away from it and be forgiven it for your glory. We can pray that prayer only when our hearts are humble and vulnerable, only when we realize just how deceitful our own hearts are, recognizing that I could easily live in rebellion without fully realizing what I'm doing. I can blind myself to my own rebellion. Oh, Lord, if that should ever happen, Restore me to your fellowship through the wound of a friend, through the rebuke of a loving brother, the reproof of a kind sister. Restore me. The reproof needs to come 
from a place of concern. That's the other side of the coin. It has to be brought in, in love. It, it, it's a rebuke, David says, from a righteous man, not a self-righteous man, not a person who feels holier than the person in front of him or her, but a man or a woman who is truly righteous, who knows his or her own sins, turns away from those sins and trusts that the Lord Jesus has forgiven those sins, but a person then who remains humble themselves. A person who's got a sensitive heart and awareness. I too am a sinner saved by grace. I know my own sinful tendencies. And then in that humble heart, you can speak to the other and show from the Word of God where they have gone astray and, and call them back. It's to be intended as a kindness. Literally, that word is steadfast love. It's that special word that occurs frequently in the, in the Old Testament for God's covenant love. The rebuke is meant to restore a covenant breaker back to covenant fellowship with God, to put a person back in a position to receive and experience the steadfast mercy, compassion, and tenderness of the Lord. That's what our goal is. A rebuke is never about putting someone down and proving yourself right. Forget that. An admonition, a reproof, can never be about making yourself feel better or putting someone in their place or tearing a strip off them because that's the right thing to do. Forget all that. Those things are correct and good when they come with the desire to see the sheep be led back to the shepherd, to see the rebellious sinner repent and come home, come home, to see the ensnared covenant child, because you see that the, that person is ensnared in their sin and they're going off to damnation, to see that ensnared covenant child set free. That's what you want. It's to be a life-giving rebuke. That's what Christ has set us free for. He set us free for life and freedom from the bonds of sin. His ultimate evening sacrifice, as well as His continual offering of incense. Remember, He's praying for us day and night ceaselessly before His Father's throne in heaven. That all has one purpose. It's to keep the Father's children safe in covenant fellowship with Him. So let our prayers and the attitudes of our hearts match those of our Savior's always praying to be kept from temptation ourselves, always opened, open to the kind correction of others, always wanting more than anything, more than anything, to be true to God's covenant. Amen.